I think it's really important to try to understand how the decision makers in life, whether they're CEOs or officials uh, in government, how you know the policies that they make within their companies or within within their countries or cities or whatever it is, really affect people's lives. For the past four decades, China has had remarkable economic progress, accelerated by its entry into the World Trade Organization. And if it were up to the Chinese government, that story of unprecedented growth would be the only one you hear about. For a business writer, it's hard to think of a better environment to be in. But what Dexter Roberts, who goes by TIFF, found out is that China's economy provided both a window to explore the other stories going on in China, as well as a guise to ward off too much government scrutiny. He lived in China for over two decades, reporting for Business Week, but his story starts as a boy living in Missoula, Montana. From the USC-US-China Institute, this is China Life the podcast sharing the stories of people living and working in China. I'm your host, Craig Steubing. And my father was a professor of American literature. My father became interested in Eastern religions and particularly at, in Zen Buddhism in the beginning. And so we actually had, uh, I can't remember what year it was in the 70s, we had a Zendo uh, for the community of practitioners of Zen Buddhism that would come and uh, sit zazen in our in the in the zendo, which was a room in our house, which had been which had a highly polished floor and had Japanese art and calligraphy on the wall, and uh, so so he was interested in Buddhism, and uh, that was actually a lifelong. He had a lifelong interest. He gave me a book, which an introduction to Chinese philosophy. I, I think when I was in high school, I remember we had a, there was a book of Mao's poetry in our house. So did that intro to Chinese philosophy book in high school, did that kind of, I don't know, make you interested in China and what this place was like? Yeah, it did. And of course in Missoula, Montana, then there was, you know, not, no real Chinese community to speak of. There was a a Hmong community of refugees from who came from Laos, who I mainly interacted with because they were very good soccer players, and I was a big soccer player. Other than in the home that I just described, there was very little Chinese presence here in Missoula, Montana. But anyway, so yeah, that book that my father gave me and that exposure at home made me interested. I went off to Stanford University uh, in the 80s, mid-80s, and... Uh, my advisor, who was a wonderful advisor, told me at the time, if you're interested in studying an Asian language, you should really study Japanese because this is you know, when Japan was supposedly on its way to take over the world and economic power. And so she said, you should be practical and, and study Japanese. And I like to joke that I was, you know, I looked into the future and I knew that China was on course to become the world's second largest economy. And, and therefore, I, I, I ignored my advisor's advice, which is completely untrue. Um, I was really, I just wasn't that interested in, at that point, uh, or now really, in studying Japan, but very interested in studying China. I took a bunch of classes. I took an introduction to Chinese philosophy. I took a class on Zen Buddhism. So that was sort of on the religious or spiritual philosophy side. I also took politics of the People's Republic of China. Well, what was it about China that intrigued you? So part of it was this just 
being very, very different for a kid growing up in, you know, Missoula, Montana. I know I'm interested in Chinese philosophy in part because of the emphasis on the natural world, the beautiful mountains of southwestern China that I would see in pictures. And we had some pictures in our house of sort of the, the, the Guilin, you know, the, the mountains down there. So that was another that was another interest. So at this point, you're like all into China. Like this is, you're interested in it. You're learning the language. You're learning the politics. You're learning the philosophy. Like, is this your goal? Like, I want to go to China. I want to do something in China about China. Yes. Yes. So I took, I, my first year Chinese was with a Taiwanese teacher, Gao Laoshir. And the second year, which was really memorable, was with a, a, a professor named uh, Mr. Zhang Laoshir. And he was from Beijing. And he's, if for those people that studied Chinese at Stanford, he's sort of a legend. He was really, really tough. It was a bit of a struggle, I have to say. I consistently worked harder in my language class, particularly second year, and consistently got worse grades. I knew I wanted to go to China. At that point, I was looking at Taiwan. But the, the sticking point was I needed a recommendation letter from, from Zhang Laoshir. And as I said, I, despite putting a lot of effort into, into the class and, and actually really enjoying it, I wasn't getting very good grades. And I remember going to uh, Zhang Laoshir's office hours to ask him for this recommendation letter, which is the one thing I needed that was outstanding in my application and being very nervous because I knew he had mixed feelings about me. And so I practiced, you know, the Chinese that, you know, for, for asking him, you know, Zhang Laoshir. And so on. So I need your recommendation. And uh, I started speaking to him in Chinese and he's sort of scowling at me and he broke into English and interrupted me and, and said to me in English, do you think that you can really learn to speak Chinese? <laughs> and I, and I, and I switched over I, my Chinese, which wasn't very good. Then I switched over to English and I said, you know, Zhang Laoshir, still called him Zhang Laoshir because that's, that's a respectful address with him. I said, you know, I don't know, but I want to find out. And that's why uh, I would really like you to write me this recommendation letter. So he wrote it and I, and I wasn't, I don't think it was a terribly competitive program to get into at the time, but I, I got in and I went off to Taiwan. I left 10 days after graduation. So what was it like getting to Taiwan for the first time? I remember feeling overwhelmed, uh, particularly as the bus started to come into Taipei. And I just remember swarms of motorcycles everywhere, just chaos in the streets. Um, you know, I just studied two and a half, two years plus another half year of this conversational Chinese class. And I thought I would manage. And people would say basic things to me, in part because of their thick Taiwanese accent, I had no idea what they were saying. I just remember thinking, wow, two and a half years of Chinese, and I can't understand basic questions here. Taiwan was my home base, I should say, for almost four years, which was absolutely not what I planned. I finished the three-month program, started to teach English, which was a big business there in Taiwan then, to make money, and then would save up money and then travel. But I didn't go to the mainland right away. I went to India. I went to Thailand. I went to Nepal. And then finally, uh, a couple years later, I finally made it to the mainland. Was there any way it could live up to the expectation that you had? Oh, politically and, and sort of the, and economically, it was 
absolutely fascinating and lived up. A lot of people go there and, you know, will discover that the the reverence for nature or something <laughs> being one with the Tao that they've read about is is not very apparent in, in modern Chinese society at all. And I remember thinking, wow, you know, there's this vibrant Buddhism, maybe folk Buddhism mixed with Taoism that you see in Taiwan. You know, every month you know, people will go out, go out and burn spirit money and, and all, right in the heart of Taipei in, in the streets. Uh, there's temples everywhere and had, uh, in many respects, done a much better job of preserving traditional Chinese culture. Tiff came back to the United States and got a master's degree in journalism from Columbia College. After he graduated in 1992, he started covering China for Business Week. What was it like reporting, you know, being an American journalist in China at that time? Was it difficult? So, you know, it was not difficult because people were welcoming and, uh, interested in talking to an American, young American who uh, spoke some Chinese. But it, many people were suspicious that you were basically a spy for the U.S. government. And in interactions with officials as well, they'd be like, uh, we, we want to talk to you because you'll help represent the true picture of China for your audience, including for the U.S. government, you know. So, so that was very, very common. And uh, it didn't necessarily make things a lot more difficult but what complicated things as a journalist was at that point you needed to, if, if you were leaving Beijing, you were supposed to apply to the local foreign affairs office to wherever you were going. So if you were even going to Shanghai, you were supposed to call up the foreign affairs office in Shanghai and do a formal application to come reporting there. And you'd have to tell them who you're going to come and talk to, how long you're going to be there. And they would, they would, in some cases, you know, uh, they would actually help you set up interviews, but they wanted to hear about this in advance. And if you didn't do this, uh, at least technically, you were in violation of, of China's re regulations on foreign journalists. And uh, a lot of journalists would just do it, would go without getting permission. Uh, as a business journalist, I sometimes would go without getting permission. And sometimes I would actually go through all the hoops, uh, take a little longer to do it. But, you know, the local foreign affairs office could actually, in many cases, be helpful, particularly working for a business magazine. They might, they might think, well, we want to introduce you to these companies. And those, not surprisingly, those companies were the ones that were doing better in whatever, whatever place I was going. So that was very different. Do you think you had an advantage working for a business-centered uh, magazine as opposed to I don't know, maybe the other newspapers or magazines who in the eyes of the government were more political? Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. The little secret I had was Business Week wanted everything. So I did a lot of political coverage. And uh, in some case, I wrote about human rights issues. I wrote about all sorts of things. Uh, but the focus on business and economics absolutely made them slightly more welcoming. And you have to keep in mind that here I am reporting China... Uh, he's going through negotiations to enter the World Trade Organization in '99, uh, I believe, and I'm writing about that. Everyone knows China's going to do this. It's going to. Everyone's aware. They're, they're hopeful that it's going to change. You know, it'll bring in investment. It's going to change the country. Uh, they enter the World Trade Organization at the end of, end of 2001, and so as a business journalist in Beijing, but also when I traveled, people would say, 
we have this, I mean, I even heard this in the little village that I write about in my book in Binghua Sun that they would, you know, they, they, the people would, they knew that China was about to enter the World Trade Organization and they saw that as a business writer, potentially I would uh, introduce their community to the world and uh, that would bring in potentially Chinese investors, maybe even American investors. So uh, very different without question if you were working for the Voice of America or the New York Times or the BBC. There was this often this knee-jerk assumption on the part of the Chinese officials, I think, that they were going to write something that was was very political, human rights focused. Um, and so they were mo- they're, they're, the default was to monitor them even more closely and uh, be less welcoming, I would say. You know, you kind of had an advantage, right? Because you weren't being watched so closely. Yeah, I, had an, I definitely had an advantage. And then, you know, uh, then there were later episodes with, well, for example, Falun Gong, when that happened, what was that, 2003, if I recall correctly, um, then suddenly I find that they're monitoring me much more closely as well and being followed in some cases. And sometimes, honestly, they would be upset when we do a, when I do a political piece and they would be like, you know, you, 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 almost as if you've tricked us, you're supposed to be a business writer. And I would say, like many places in the world, and certainly here in China, politics is very much involved in business and economics, and uh, we we write about everything. Was there a particular story that you felt, I don't know, proud of that you, you know, that was sort of outside the purview of business um, that you could kind of do it that, I don't know, maybe, maybe some of your other journalist friends slash competitors in China were jealous of? Well, I don't know if, if people were jealous of them, but in the year 2000, I did two big, two cover stories, so big, big productions. I spent months on each of them. And one was on the wealth gap in China, mainly between the cities and the countryside. And uh, this was at the time of China, shortly after China launching the Develop, Develop the West program, Shibu Kaifa. And uh, there's awareness, growing awareness amongst Chinese officials that uh, inequality was growing uh, in the as Deng Xiaoping's reforms continued, and so that trip, and then a second uh, second cover story I did later in the year, also spent months on, was called the Great Migration, and it was on migrant workers, and uh, both of them definitely related to economics and business. Uh, Developed the West, I was talking to various companies, including American companies that were being encouraged to go do business in the West, and some cases being given tax breaks or regulations being waived so that they would go to the West and not just do business on the coast. Uh, but also very, you know, but, but more than that, a very political, very, very much about people's lives. So sociological for lack of a better word, particularly the great migration took me to Guizhou, uh, which was a real eye opener for me. It was the first time I'd been there. It was absolutely beautiful, fascinating, and a very completely different part of China, uh, away from the factories, away from the big cities, so both of those uh, were very had a great influence on me, and as I at that time I thought this is a part of China I'm really interested in. I'm going to continue writing about it. Maybe even someday I could do a book about it, which is what I eventually did. What are these stories? Did it change your feelings on China that maybe you didn't realize until you started the story? It made the policies that I'd been writing about very real. As a business journalist, we're sort of taught to follow the money and to follow the money is to see, you know, who's actually benefiting from, uh, whatever this policy or this, uh, 
you know, the way this, this corporation runs and, uh, you know, you follow the money can be extended to look at, you know, follow the, follow the influence, follow the power. And I think it's, it's a great way to be a journalist and great, and frankly, a great way to, to look at the, again, the decision makers, whether corporate or in government around you and sort of, <laughs> it's always important to understand how these things are affecting those people that are not the decision makers, the, those who are not famous. And, uh, you can't, you know, you're not going to do a good job at uh, understanding them or writing about them or reporting on them if you don't really dig in to look at what these mean for real people's lives. So back when you were at Stanford and you went to your Chinese uh, professor for this recommendation letter to go to Taiwan, and he asked if you could actually learn Chinese, and then you said this, I don't know, but I want to find out. Yeah. What do you think you've found out um, in your journey with China? Well, I found out I could learn Chinese. (laughs) 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 I found out that this interest as a young person in China was absolutely worthy of that youthful interest. Personally, it's been tremendously rewarding for me to focus my life on trying to understand China. And I think uh, we, you know, we as a, we speaking as the human species, all of us need to know, need to know China. There's, at least in the U.S.-China relationship, there's all these growing tensions. But the importance of actually understanding each other and having a relationship, uh, I can't say, I can think of a few other bilateral relationships in the world that are as important China Life is a production of the USC US China Institute. If you haven't already, subscribe to China Life wherever you listen to podcasts to get all of our shows downloaded onto your listening device automatically. While you're there, leave us a review. It really helps other people find out about the show. To learn more about the USC US China Institute and browse our vast collection of resources, such as historical and contemporary documents, China-related events around the US, author interviews, and seminars for educators, visit our website at china.usc.edu. I'm Craig Steubing, and this is China Life.